Welcome back, Juniors. When we last left Heather, Stacy, and Ken, they were being led out of the city, but their way was barred by three armed Hyperboreans. Now, back to the story. Chapter 28 Frozen, Heather watched the battle unfold. The first attacker folded himself over an arrow that had appeared in his gut. His spear clattered onto the stone road. The second attacker caught a javelin in the chest thrown by the shorter centurion. He leaned back against it, upright, his weapon still clasped in his dead hand. The third hurled his brass-tipped spear directly at Heather before his head snapped back to the side and fell to the ground, an arrow protruding from his left eye. Time slowed, but her mind sped. Heather knew the spear. It coasted through the air towards her with all the time in the world. The weapon knew its destiny, and it would taste her blood in due time. Why not enjoy the ride? Heather imagined she could hear the weapon's taunts of certain death. She was going to die, and that stupid stick was taking pleasure in it. The tarnished head seemed to smile as it inched closer. Its arrogance infuriated her. No, this twig will not be the end of her. She refused to die this way. It would move, not her. The spear missed, but flew close enough to brush her hair just above her right ear. Heather would have smirked at the surprised look on the spearhead's face as it sailed by if she had not been equally shocked and bewildered. What the f- Ken! Language! She snapped. She was herself again. Spears didn't know their destiny, and they never looked surprised. And she could move again, which Heather suggested perhaps a bit too loudly that they all do immediately. The tall centurion, she would have to learn their names, loomed over her. Calm yourself, he said, as much to her as to the others. We do not flee. We march. We do not gallop headlong into another trap. Heather was perfectly calm and was about to explain how incredibly calm she was to this metal-clad numbskull, but maybe now was not the time to enter into a debate. Still, she was the epitome of calm especially for someone who just had a spear chucked at their head. The taller centurion, Mr. Grumpy Face, turned from her and began to lead the group in an infuriatingly slow pace while the shorter, quieter centurion guarded their rear. Heather guided her horse next to the one Callista and Stacy rode. Thank you, Callista. Callista smiled. I thought I was too slow. It seemed as if he threw it before my arrow found him. I feared I had failed to protect you. They exited the courtyard on horseback, surrounded by the sounds of turmoil that echoed down the streets. Callista notched another arrow as she guided her horse with her legs. Heather considered herself an adept rider, but such skill was beyond her, let alone trying to shoot something from horseback at the same time. Smoke filled the air as they reached the west gate, causing Heather and her friends to cover their mouth and noses while their escorts remained unfazed. The doors stood open, with a troop of ten guards at the ready. Mr. Grumpy Face informed a man clutching in an ornate rod that his party had been attacked, and one of the three assailants may still be alive. The Westgate officer shouted an order, and two guards took off in the direction of Heather and the rest had come. No, 
Alias and I are sufficient. Mr. Grumpyface answered a question that Heather had missed. The Dryad has skills, and I do not expect an attack on the open road. Send word to the other gates that no one exits until Quintus Menicus Rufus allows it. The officer nodded. Tell them, he ordered the two Hyperboreans that flanked him. The two guards shot in different directions. He turned back to Mr. Grumpyface. Until the sin is paid, he said. Until forgiveness is received. Grumpyface turned and led the group through the gate. The doors shut behind them. To Heather, it was an ominous sound. And so the journey begins, with the closing of a gate and the land spread before us, murmured the shorter centurion behind them. Heather decided to call him the poet. They traveled due west until the sun was three fingers above the horizon. They made good time, as Heather's father would say, even though they'd switch between riding and walking every mile or league or whatever form of measurement these inhabitants used in this world to rest the horses. You rode as much as you walked in the Old West, Heather's father had told her, and horses never galloped across the countryside like you see in the movies. All that running makes your horse dead real fast. They rode wordlessly for hours, and of course it was Ken who finally broke the silence. Why do you guys talk so much about sin? He asked with his usual lack of tact. Silence answered him. Heather's horse shook its head and snorted as her hand unconsciously tightened on the reins. She relaxed and patted the piebald's neck in apology. You must be from very far away, the poet said. Long ago, it is our story, tree dweller. I will tell it. You seek Trindok, so you know of the Anani. Kin nodded, confused. The poet sighed or growled. Heather couldn't tell. If you do not understand what you look for, how can you find it? The Anani bind themselves to a specific area and its inhabitants. When I say its inhabitants, I mean everything, from worms to the birds and all things in between. The spirit and the land combined in them, and they are the personification of the unity. Do you understand? Yeah, they're like gods, Ken answered. Only men need gods, but I see that you comprehend. It is said that he tended over us like we were his favorite children. Anyone could come to him for wisdom, and many did, and they were all changed. The good in them became greater. The splendor of the unity shone in them. Under his guidance, we prospered and grew as a people. We built great cities and changed the paths of rivers, and the pride of our accomplishments blinded us. Not everyone thinks this way, but I hear truth in it. You're a purist, Mr. Grumpyface said over his shoulder. The scrolls say that it became increasingly harder to find Trendok, the poet answered back. The other centurion turned around in his saddle and smiled. Give over, friend. I know better than to debate you about scrolls. I still say you should have been a seeker, but I'm glad to have you as a soldier. The poet nodded. He continued with his own smile. There are many adventures of people seeking Trindok in the later days. He never appeared in the same place, or to the same person twice, and you have to have great need. Like the green men, it was this character, Ken said, and trailed off under the centurion's gaze. 
ears and mouths do not work simultaneously, the poet rumbled under his breath, just loud enough for Heather to catch. He continued, Over four hundred years ago, Jaius the Mad King started a war with the Metef. He claimed a betrayal and that they were encroaching on our kingdom, but his motives were fueled by greed and the tree-dwellers stood in his way. He led his army to take what he lusted after, and Trindok barred his path. The Mad King sent the ten thousand led by his son, Maus, to convince the Anani to bow to his will. He didn't go himself. He was mad, but not a fool. It was just beyond the border of our city when Trindok unleashed his fury. He changed the ten thousand. He brought their wickedness from inside their hearts and allowed it to show on the outside. And so they became the Exotheneo, the despised, the others. They ravaged the land, and Maus the Twisted slew his father. It was the youngest son, Phaeus, that drove them into the Lektok Mountains with fire and steel. Phaeus began to rebuild from the ashes of his father's folly, and of course, Trindog was never seen again. I don't get it, Ken said. Why do you need to be forgiven? You guys didn't do anything wrong. What was done was done as a people. No one spoke against the king. What was done was done as a nation. And Trindok still watches and judges. Who knows when he'll change all of us. I have not met a sentient being yet that doesn't have some darkness in him. Are you without sin, Ken Long Cavalier? Ken scratched at his chest and stared at the dying sun. Me? Not by a long shot. During their history lesson, the landscape had changed from rolling hills to a thickly forested mountain range. They traveled a mile farther up the road until they reached a long stretch with two sheer rock walls on each side. It was an hour before sunset, Heather guessed, when Centurion Scavia, she had finally learned Mr. Grumpy Face's name, had called them to a halt and ordered them to start making camp. Heather could see why the tall centurion chose the spot. It was protected on two sides, with enough distance to see an attack coming. Of course, if they were attacked on both sides, they would be trapped, but she hoped that was highly unlikely. The enemy would have to travel across a steep hill in the dark in order to flank them. Heather slid off her mount and sought out Calista to see how she could help. With the campsite complete, Heather sat on a blanket and stretched as she tried to work the long day out of her legs. Ken sat with Stacy next to her, playing the dice game Tolly. Occasionally, Stacy would shout out a word in glee at what Heather assumed was a good roll. Heather had already inspected and groomed her horse. They had not ridden hard, but she enjoyed the normality of the task and could not help but think of her father as she rubbed her horse down with dry grass. Alias, the poet took his time as he checked each mount. He gently inspected each hoof for flaws or bruising, whispered something to each horse, and gave them a reassuring pat. He tended to Heather's horse last, and she was warmed by his respectful nod. Finished, he took his post at the back of the pass, stiff and watchful. All gentleness melted away. Callista had slipped away without a word, happy to be among the trees again, Heather supposed. Salsus had not said a single word since they left the stables earlier that day. He made a ring of stones for a fire in front of where Heather and her friends sat. 
Marais followed him as he set out small pots to prepare their evening meal and began to gather wood for the fire. Quintus Menicus Rufus must think your mission is important to send his best slave with you, especially with that dog Nod stirring up trouble. Scavia, Mr. Grumpy Face, said as he pulled something wrapped in an oily cloth from his saddlebag and sat down next to her. He's a slave? And a good one, too. I have never seen him even give the commander a cross look behind his back. Of course, Salsus is a stoic, but I think he truly likes his master. He'll probably take his name when he buys his freedom. I suspect he could have attained his freedom years ago. He shook his head. Stoics. Heather only understood half of what the tall centurion said, and she didn't like the feeling. Stoic? It's a philosophy. He started to sharpen his sword with a rectangular stone. Ask him. He'd be happy to talk at length about it, though you won't be able to tell by his expression. The fire is unwise, Callista said. Heather yipped in surprise. She had not heard the dryad approach. Callista had traded her normal dress for leaf armor with short spears in hand and a bow and a quiver on her back. It is a dark moon, and the fire will attract attention we do not want. Though not fully dark yet, Heather could see the full moon just begin to peek its face on the front of the pass. It was the brightest moon she had ever seen. In this world, there wasn't the exhaust of millions of cars and billions of feet kicking up dust into the atmosphere. The orb shone bright and demanded attention. That moon is anything but dark, she thought. Scavia opened his mouth with a smile and then reconsidered. As you wish, Metef. But without the fire, we'll be eating hard bread and tough meat until we reach Portus Petra. I have ways of giving us light and heat, she said over her shoulder as she walked to her horse. Do you believe in magic? Heather asked Scavia. I believe there are things we do not understand, he answered as he watched Callista carry three large green egg-shaped stones and kneel beside the slave who was just getting the fire started. She spoke softly to him. Salsa stood, kicked out the fire, and bowed to the dryad. I didn't either, or do not. I'm not sure anymore. Heather frowned, her voice low as she watched Callista steeple the stones against each other where the fire had been. I really don't know anymore. The things I've seen, this whole experience is beyond me. I don't understand how water is wet, but it is. Scavia stood with his sword in hand his eyes transfixed on Clista as she chanted over the stones. You would have made a good stoic, he said absently. Merda! He breathed as the stones flickered and burst into light. Solace flinched, caught his foot on a rock, and sat down heavily. Heather stifled her laugh, but she heard Stacy giggle, and Ken gave a rude guffaw. The slave didn't seem embarrassed. He stood, brushed himself off, and began to prepare the food. Magic, Heather whispered. Indeed, he answered and leaned closer to examine the radiating stones. The meal was better than Heather expected. It consisted of rice and beans and some delicious chewy bread that reminded her of home. All in all, it was hot and filling, and the drink was sweet and spicy. She wondered if it contained any alcohol. It's possible the refreshment gave her enough courage to broach the subject of salsas as they sat around the stones and basked in their warmth. What is a stoic, Salsas? 
And with that, I shall return to my post, smiled Alias. I need to be awake and alert in case of trouble. Scavia chuckled, but Salsus answered as if he had not heard. A Stoic is a person who follows Stoicism. Stoicism is a philosophy of acceptance and control. The world is perfect, and all is as it should be. We are a seed on the air and have no control of where we are or how we are driven. Does it benefit the seed to be angry at the wind? Can the seed change its course? So are we with our lives. Can I control that I am a slave? Should I be angry at the spirit for my station in life? Will my feelings make me free? No. Things are how they should be, and I must pursue acceptance of my destiny. Baffled, Heather asked, How can you be content with being a slave? I cannot control my fate, but I can control my reaction to it. Do you regret being a female? A choice was made without your consent, and thus you are a slave to your gender. Heather decided not to explain that where she was from, a person could change their bodies to fit the gender they associated with. The explanation would be complicated at best. Kin spoke up. He had a lost look in his eyes as he stared at the pulsing stones. It's like the serenity prayer. God, or, or spirit in your case, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. He shifted and scratched at his chest. My dad was in AA. This is the heart of being a Stoic. Solace nodded. To control your attitude and emotions is to grant yourself peace. You have wisdom, Ken Long Cavalier. Ken smiled. He, he's Spock! Oh, man! Steve would have a field day with this! He laughed, shaking off his dark mood. Is Spock a philosopher? No, well, maybe. Ken's smile broadened. He's a character in a TV show. It's like a play about space travelers. Spock is an alien from another planet. I can't remember the name, but he doesn't show emotions. Steve can explain it better than me. He's a total Trekkie. A cold wind blew through the camp. Heather tightened her shoulders against a shiver as the stone's bright glow faded to pulsing embers. Callista stood and turned her back to the stones as she faced the far end of the pass. They are here. Please, do not be alarmed. She touched her fingers to her lips, then her forehead, and swung her hands down with palms facing out. Welcome, brothers. There was a hiss, but not really a hiss. Heather thought it sounded more like the air passing over a snake's back as it slipped through the grass, or the hiss of spider silk being wrapped around an insect as its struggling grew weaker. It felt like something was burrowing into her spine via her eardrum. The dark ones, Scavia said with a mix of awe and fear. Both centurions reached for their weapons. Hold, Callista said, her eyes fixed on the darkness of the forward pass. The centurions relented, and Heather could not shake the feeling that this moment was the closest to death she had ever come. They are my friends, she answered the inhuman sound. We request safe passage. We mean no harm to you or your forest. The unnerving sound came again, like flesh sizzling on a hot rock. Yes, the treaty holds, Callista said. My sister, Zoe of the Metaf, second keeper of the staff, 
daughter of Epitropus of Meglios Zulon, bride of the Hyperborean, goes before me for ratification. Heather realized with a start that Callista was conversing with the sound. It hissed again. It sounded like millions upon millions of pine needles cascading from a dying tree. It was a betrayed sound, an accusing sound. We do what we must to protect the tree, Callista said with no hint of apology. Heather felt eyes on her and clutched at her legs to keep from squirming. The hiss was an eerie, oily feeling in her ears. They are lost. They seek the counsel of the friend to find a way home. The atmosphere changed. The sinister hiss fled and was replaced by an almost, but not quite, gentle sound. It was the sound of sunlight through leaves, bright enough to show the delicate veins of the leaf as it coasted on a warm summer breeze. And my heart follows you, brother, Clista said to the newcomer. The tree lives, and where there is life, there is hope. The sound continued, and Heather saw a beautiful poplar dropping a seed in rich loam in her mind's eye. Yes, my first, and she has already taught me so much, Clista said. It is something mother told me that I finally understand. You cannot teach without learning. The gentle sound answered, flower petals slowly releasing their embrace of each other as they opened to pay homage to the sun and sky. Heather could feel glory, honor, and promise from the sound, and yet there was something dark to it. A warning? You honor me. The rustling faded, and with it the stones glowed stronger. It must have been a trick of the light, but Heather thought she saw a blush on the triad's cheeks. There was a sound of something slipping away that left Heather with an impression of ripples in the pond fading back to serenity. She caught a glimpse of something, tall, lean, and dark, exiting the mouth of the pass. The figure stopped and turned. Paths are for men, little stranger, it said, and faded into shadow. Heather instinctively knew the message was meant for her. The sound was cold and warm, ancient and young, and something completely alien to man. Callista sat down without her usual grace, took a long, deep breath, and blew it out raggedly. She wiped her damp brow and smiled. I do not wish to repeat an experience like that ever again. The brightness of the rocks returned. We are safe from your dark brothers, she said to the Hyperboreans, but they have warned us to remain vigilant. There are mindless beasts in the forest that have awakened with our arrival. The centurions stood and wordlessly headed to separate sides of the path, weapons at the ready. No surprise to Heather, Ken broke the silence. What the f heck was that? Not all Hyperboreans are like the ones you've seen. Clissa explained as her eyes lingered at the spot where the rustling had faded. They are one race, but two people. The Hyperboreans called them Nigrum a word that inspired fear and dread. But my sisters and I refer to him as the Natalist. They are the true, or rather, they are more like the original Hyperboreans that came to our land long ago. I do not know why or how they became two people. My sister Cleo could speak volumes on the subject. From what little I understand, some began to build cities and form a civilization, and the others retreated into the depths of the wood. The Natalis became foreign, even to us who are part of the trees. 
Their motives are unclear, and their actions fierce. Be at rest. They have granted us safe passage, and even though it was not said, I believe they will protect us from any threat as long as we are in their territory. I feel better already, Jin said. The rustling, that was them speaking? Heather asked. Yes, there were several out there, but I spoke with two of them. It seemed, Heather stopped, not sure where she was going. The second one liked you, Stacy said. This time, Heather was sure Clista blushed, and she couldn't help but giggle. Whatever, Ken said. The giggles became outright laughter. It was midday before the road led them out of the windy mountains and into the rolling hills. The pass they had slept in had fallen away quickly and took the huge oaks with it. On their right, the mountain continued, but a creek emerged on their left. The water meandered in a small gorge as they descended into flatter country. It all seemed familiar to Heather. The sights, the sounds, even the dust kicked up by the horse's hooves gave her a sense of deja vu. Salt tinged the air, and the washed-out gray sky, known as June Gloom back home, had just begun to burn off and gave glimpses of a brilliant blue sky. The road cut through a swath of orchards with almond trees on the left and oranges on the right. Insects flew to and fro, collecting the sweet nectar. Heather's favorite smell was blooming orange trees, and her head felt giddy with every deep breath she took. The trees fell away after a few acres and were replaced by white stone grave markers. Heather rubbed her arms. Tombstones would forever remind her of dark forests and howls in the night. She kept her eyes on the city gates and ignored her goose-flesh skin. The walls were constructed of gray stone that gleamed in the sun, and she thought they might be over 50 feet tall, though she was not very good at judging such things. There were ramparts that were probably 100 feet apart, with armored persons at their posts. The walls continued in a mile in either direction, each sculpted to fit the terrain. It would be best if you wore your hoods from now on, Alias announced, a bit apologetically, to hide your differences. Heather understood his hesitation. He believed her ears were deformed. She nodded and pulled her hood up. It was best to avoid as much attention as possible. They crested the last small hill and exited the orchards. The road led straight through the tombstones, which Heather chose to ignore, and instead looked toward the sea that was finally visible. The city was obviously a major Hyperborean port. Masted ships floated in the harbor and waited for their cargo to be unloaded or to disembark. They sat in the shadow of a giant rock that rested in the bay like a forgotten giant's keepsake, or a god's pebble. Heather jerked her horse to a stop. Moral rock? Holy crap! This time, Heather emphatically agreed with Ken. That's all for this week, Journeyers. Next week, we return to Michael, Bear, and Steve as they continue their journey to find Trindoc. As always, thank you for listening, and be good to one another. <laughs>